This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to learn how to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. THE SEAHAWK by Raphael Sabatini Preface and Chapter One The Preface Lord Henry Goad, who had, as we shall see, some personal acquaintance with Sir Oliver Tressilian, tells us, quite bluntly, that he was ill-favoured. But then his lordship is addicted to harsh judgments, and his perceptions are not always normal. He says, for instance, of Anne of Cleves, that she was the ugliest woman that ever I saw. As far as we can glean from his own voluminous writings, it would seem to be extremely doubtful whether he ever saw Anne of Cleves at all, and we suspect him here of being no more than a slavish echo of the common voice, which attributed Cromwell's downfall to the ugliness of this bride he procured for his Bluebeard master. To the common voice from the brush of Holbein, which permits us to form our own opinions, and shows us a lady who is certainly very far from deserving his lordship's harsh stricture. Similarly, I like to believe that Lord Henry was wrong in his pronouncement upon Sir Oliver, and I am encouraged in this belief by the pen portrait which he himself appends to it. He was, he says, a tall, powerful fellow of a good shape, if we accept that his arms were too long, and that his feet and hands were of an uncomely bigness. In face he was swarthy, with black hair and a black forked beard. His nose was big and very high on the bridge, and his eyes sunk deep under beetling eyebrows were very pale-colored, and very cruel, and sinister. He had, and this I have ever remarked to be the sign of great virility in a man, a big, deep, rough voice, uh, better suited to, and no doubt oftener employed in, quarter-deck foulnesses than the worship of his Maker. Thus my Lord Henry Goad, and you observe how he permits his lingering disapproval of the man to intrude upon his description of him. The truth is that, as there is ample testimony in his prolific writings, his lordship was something of a misanthropist. In fact, it was his misanthropy which drove him, as it has driven many another, to authorship. He takes up the pen, not so much that he may carry out his professed object of writing a chronicle of his own time, but to the end that he may vent the bitterness engendered in him by his fall from favor. As a consequence, he has little that is good to say of any one, and rarely mentions one of his contemporaries but to tap the sources of a picturesque invective. After all, it is possible to make excuses for him. He was at once a man of thought and a man of action, 
a combination as rare as it is usually deplorable. The man of action in him might have gone far, had he not been ruined at the outset by the man of thought. A magnificent seaman, he might have become Lord High Admiral of England, but for a certain proneness to intrigue. Fortunately for him, since otherwise he could hardly have kept his head where nature had placed it, he came betimes under a cloud of suspicion. His career suffered a check, but it was necessary to afford him some compensation, since, after all, the suspicions could not be substantiated. Consequently, he was removed from his command and appointed by the Queen's Grace her lieutenant of Cornwall, a position in which it was judged that he could do little mischief. There, soured by this blighting of his ambitions, and living a life of comparative seclusion, he turned, as so many other men similarly placed have turned, to seek consolation in his pen. He wrote his singularly crabbed, narrow, and superficial history of Lord Henry Goad, his own times, which is a miracle of injuvenations, distortions, misrepresentations, and eccentric spelling. In the eighteen enormous folio volumes, which he filled with his minute and gothic characters, he gives his own version of the story of what he terms his downfall, and, having notwithstanding his prolixity, exhausted the subject in the first five of the eighteen tomes, he proceeds to deal with so much of the history of his own day as came immediately under his notice in his Cornish retirement. For the purposes of English history, his chronicles are entirely negligible, which is the reason why they have been allowed to remain unpublished and in oblivion. But to the student who attempts to follow the history of that extraordinary man, Sir Oliver Tresillian, they are entirely invaluable. And since I have made this history my present task, it is fitting that I should here at the outset acknowledge my extreme indebtedness to those chronicles. Without them, indeed, it were impossible to reconstruct the life of that Cornish gentleman who became a renegade and a Barbary corsair, and might have become Basha of Algiers, or Argar, as his lordship terms it, but for certain matters which are to be set forth. Lord Henry wrote with knowledge and authority, and the tale he has to tell is very complete and full of precious detail. He was himself an eyewitness of much that happened. He pursued a personal acquaintance with many of those who were connected with Sir Oliver's affairs, that he might amplify his chronicles, and he considered no scrap of gossip that was to be gleaned along the countryside too trivial to be recorded. I suspect him also of having received no little assistance from Jasper Lee in the matter of those events that happened out of England, which seemed to me to constitute by far 
the most interesting portion of his narrative. R.S. Chapter 1. The Huckster Sir Oliver Tresillian sat at his ease in the lofty dining-room of the handsome house of Panero, which he owed to the enterprise of his father of lamented and lamentable memory, and to the skill and invention of an Italian engineer named Bagnolo, who had come to England half a century ago as one of the assistants of the famous Torrigiani. This house, of such a startlingly singular and Italianate grace, for so remote a corner of Cornwall, deserves, together with the story of its construction, a word in passing. The Italian Bagnolo, who combined with his salient artistic talents a quarrelsome, volcanic humor, had the mischance to kill a man in a brawl in a Southwark tavern. As a result he fled the town, nor paused in his headlong flight from the consequences of that murderous deed, until he had all but reached the very ends of England. Under what circumstances he became acquainted with Tresillian the Elder, I do not know. But certain it is that the meeting was a very timely one for both of them. To the fugitive, Ralph Tresillian, who appears to have been inveterately partial to the company of rascals of all denominations, afforded shelter, and Bagnolo repaid the service by offering to rebuild the decaying half-timbered house of Panaro. Having taken the task in hand, he went about it with all the enthusiasm of your true artist, and achieved for his protector a residence that was a marvel of grace in that crude age and outlandish district. There arose, under the supervision of the gifted engineer, worthy associate of Messer Torrigiani, a noble two-storied mansion of mellow red brick, flooded with light and sunshine by the enormously tall mullioned windows that rose almost from base to summit of each pilastered façade. The main doorway was set in a projecting wing, and was overhung by a massive balcony, the whole surmounted by a pillared pediment of extraordinary grace, now partly clad in a green mantle of creepers. Above the burnt red tiles of the roof soared massive twisted chimneys in lofty majesty. But the glory of Panero, that is, of the new Panero, begotten of the fertile brain of Bagnolo, was the garden, fashioned out of the tangled wilderness about the old house that had crowned the heights above Panero Point. To the labors of Bagnolo, time and nature had added their own. Bagnolo had cut those handsome esplanades, had built those noble balustrades, bordering the three terraces with their fine connecting flights of steps. Himself he had planned the fountain, and with his own hands had carved the granite fawn presiding over it, and the dozen other statues of nymphs and sylvan gods 
in a marble that gleamed in white brilliance amid the dusky green. But time and nature had smoothed the lawns to a velvet surface, had thickened the handsome boxwood hedges, and thrust up those black spear-like poplars that completed the very Italianate appearance of that Cornish domain. Sir Oliver took his ease in his dining-room, considering all this as it was displayed before him in the mellowing September sunshine, and found it all very good to see, and life very good to live. Now no man has ever been known to find life so without some immediate cause, other than that of his environment, for his optimism. Sir Oliver had several causes. The first of these, although it was one which he may have been far from suspecting, was his equipment of youth, wealth, and good digestion. The second was that he had achieved honor and renown both upon the Spanish main and in the late harrying of the invincible armada, or, more aptly might it be said, perhaps, in the harrying of the late invincible armada, and that he had received, in that, the twenty-fifth year of his life, the honor of knighthood from the Virgin Queen, the third and last contributor to his pleasant mood, and I have reserved it for the end, as I account this to be the proper place for the most important factor, was Dan Cupid, who for once seemed compounded entirely of benignity, and who had so contrived matters that Sir Oliver's wooing of Mistress Rosamond Godolphin ran an entirely smooth and happy course. So then Sir Oliver sat at his ease in his tall, carved chair, his doublet untrussed, his long legs stretched before him, a pensive smile about the firm lips that as yet were darkened by no more than a small black line of mustachios. Lord Henry's portrait of him was drawn at a much later period. It was noon, and our gentlemen had just dined, as the platters, the broken meats, and the half-empty flagon on the board beside him testified. He pulled thoughtfully at a long pipe, for he had acquired this newly imported habit of tobacco-drinking, and dreamed of his mistress, and was properly and gallantly grateful that fortune had used him so handsomely, so as to enable him to toss a title and some measure of renown into his Rosamond's lap. By nature Sir Oliver was a shrewd fellow, cunning as twenty devils, is my Lord Henry's phrase, and he was also a man of some not inconsiderable learning. Yet neither his natural wit nor his acquired endowments appeared to have taught him that, of all the gods that rule the destinies of mankind, there is none more ironic and malicious than that same Dan Cupid, in whose honour, as it were, he was now burning the incense of that pipe of his. The ancients knew that 
innocent-seeming boy for a cruel impish knave, and they mistrusted him. Sir Oliver either did not know or did not heed that sound piece of ancient wisdom. It was to be borne in upon him by grim experience, and even as his light pensive eyes smiled upon the sunshine that flooded the terrace beyond the long mullioned window, a shadow fell athwart it, which he little dreamed to be symbolic of the shadow that was even falling across the sunshine of his life. After that shadow came the substance, tall and gay of raiment, under a broad black Spanish hat, decked with blood-red plumes. Swinging along beribboned came the figure past the windows, stalking deliberately as fate. The smile perished on Sir Oliver's lips. His swarthy face grew thoughtful, his black brows contracted until no more than a single deep furrow stood between them. Then slowly the smile came forth again, but no longer that erstwhile gentle pensive smile. It was transformed into a smile of resolve and determination, a smile that tightened his lips even as his brows relaxed, and invested his brooding eyes with a gleam that was mocking, crafty, and almost wicked. Came Nicholas his servant to announce Master Peter Godolphin, and close upon the lackey's heels came Master Godolphin himself, leaning upon his beribboned cane and carrying his broad Spanish hat. He was a tall, slender gentleman, with a shaven, handsome countenance, stamped with an air of haughtiness. Like Sir Oliver, he had a high-bridged, intrepid nose, and in age he was the younger by some two or three years. He wore his auburn hair rather longer than was the mode just then, but in his apparel there was no more foppishness than is tolerable in a gentleman of his years. Sir Oliver rose and bowed with his great height in welcome. But a wave of tobacco-smoke took his graceful visitor in the throat, and set him coughing and grimacing. <coughs> I see, he choked, that ye have acquired that filthy <coughs> habit. I have known filthier, said Oliver composedly. <coughs> I nothing doubt it, rejoined Master Godolphin, thus early giving indications of his humour, and the object of his visit. Sir Oliver checked an answer that must have helped his visitor to his ends, which was no part of the knight's intent. Therefore, said he, ironically, I hope you will be patient with my shortcomings. Nick, a chair for Master Godolphin, and another cup. I bid you welcome to Panaro. A sneer flickered over the younger man's white face. "'You pay me a compliment, sir, which I fear me tis not mine to return to you.' "'Time enough for that when I come to seek it,' said Sir Oliver, with easy, if assumed, good humour. 
When you come to seek it, the hospitality of your house, Sir Oliver explained. It is on that very matter that I am come to talk with you. Will you sit, invited Sir Oliver, and spread a hand toward the chair which Nicholas had set. In the same gesture he waved the servant away. Master Godolphin ignored the invitation. You were, he said, at Godolphin Court but yesterday, I hear. He paused, and as Sir Oliver offered no denial, he added stiffly, I am come, sir, to inform you that the honour of your visits is one we shall be happy to forego. In the effort he made to preserve his self-control before so direct an affront, Sir Oliver paled a little under his tan. You will understand, Peter, he replied slowly, that you have said too much unless you add something more. He paused, considering his visitor a moment. I do not know whether Rosamond has told you that yesterday she did me the honor to consent to become my wife. She is a child that does not know her mind, broke in the other. Do you know of any good reason why she should come to change it? asked Sir Oliver, with a slight air of challenge. Master Godolphin sat down, crossed his legs, and placed his hat on his knee. I know a dozen, he answered, but I need not urge them. Sufficient should it be to remind you that Rosamond is but seventeen, and that she is under my guardianship and that of Sir John Killigrew. Neither Sir John nor I can sanction this betrothal. Good lack, broke out Sir Oliver. Who asked your sanction, or Sir John's? By God's grace your sister will grow to be a woman soon, and mistress of herself. I am in no desperate haste to get me wed, and by nature, as you may be observing, I am a wondrous patient man. I'll even wait, and he pulled at his pipe. Waiting cannot avail you in this, Sir Oliver. Tis best you should understand. We are resolved, Sir John and I. Oh, are you so? God's light. Send Sir John to me to tell me of his resolves, and I'll tell him something of mine. Tell him from me, Master Godolphin, that if he will trouble to come as far as Penaro, I'll do by him what the hangman should have done long since. I'll crop his pimpish ears for him by this hand. Meanwhile, said Master Godolphin weddingly, will you not assay your rover's prowess upon me? You, quoth Sir Oliver, and looked him over with good-humoured contempt. I'm no butcher of fledglings, my lad. Besides, you are your sister's brother, and tis no aim of mine to increase the obstacles already in my path. Then his tone changed. He leaned across the table. Come now, Peter, what is at the root of all this matter? Can we not compose such differences as you conceive exist? 
out with them. "'Tis no matter for Sir John. "'He's a curmudgeon who signifies not a finger's snap. "'But you, tis different. "'You are her brother. "'Out with your plaints, then. "'Let us be frank and friendly.' "'Friendly?' the other sneered again. "'Our fathers set us an example in that.' Does it matter what our fathers did? More shame to them, if, being neighbors, they could not be friends. Shall we follow so deplorable an example? You'll not impute that the fault lay with my father, cried the other, with a show of ready anger. I impute nothing, lad. I cry shame upon them both. Swounds, swore Master Peter. Do you malign the dead? If I do, then I malign them both. But I do not. I no more than condemn a fault that both must acknowledge could they return to life. Then, sir, confine your condemnings to your own father, with whom no man of honor could have lived at peace. Softly, softly, good sir. There's no call to go softly. Ralph Tressilian was a dishonor, a scandal to the countryside, not a hamlet between here and Truro, or between here and Helston, but swarms with big Tressilian noses like your own, in memory of your debauched parent. Sir Oliver's eyes grew narrower. He smiled. I wonder how you came by your own nose, he wondered. Master Godolphin got to his feet in a passion, and his chair crashed over behind him. Sir, he blazed, you insult my mother's memory. Sir Oliver laughed. <laughs> well, I make a little free with it, perhaps, in return for your pleasantries on the score of my father. Master Godolphin pondered him in speechless anger. Then, swayed by his passion, he leaned across the board, raised his long cane, and struck Sir Oliver sharply on the shoulder. That done, he strode off magnificently towards the door. Halfway thither, he paused. I shall expect your friends and the length of your sword, said he. Sir Oliver laughed again. <laughs> I don't think I shall trouble to send them, said he. Master Godolphin wheeled fully to face him again. How? You will take a blow? Sir Oliver shrugged. None saw it given, said he. But I shall publish it abroad that I have caned you. You'll punish yourself a liar if you do, for none will believe you. Then he changed his tone yet again. Come, Peter, we are behaving unworthily. As for the blow, I confess that I deserved it. A man's mother is more sacred than his father. So we may cry quits on that score. Can we not cry quits on all else? What can it profit us to perpetuate a foolish quarrel that sprang up between our fathers? There is more than that between us, answered Master Godolphin. I'll not have my sister wed a pirate. A 
Pirate? God's light! I am glad there's none to hear you, for, since her grace has knighted me for my doings upon the seas, your words go very near to treason. Surely, lad, what the queen approves, Master Peter Godolphin uh, may approve, and even your mentor, Sir John Killigrew. You've been listening to him. "'Twas he sent you hither. "'I am no man's lackey,' answered the other hotly, "'resenting the imputation, "'and resenting it the more because of the truth in it. "'To call me a pirate is to say a foolish thing. "'Hawkins, with whom I sailed, has also received the accolade, "'and who dubs us pirates insults the queen herself. "'Apart from that, which, as you see, is a very empty charge. What else have you against me? I am, I hope, as good as any other here in Cornwall. Rosamond honours me with her affection, and I am rich, and shall be richer still, ere the wedding bells are heard. Rich with the fruit of thieving upon the seas, rich with treasures of scuttled ships, and the price of slaves captured in Africa and sold to the plantations, rich as the vampire is glutted with the blood of dead men. Does Sir John say that? asked Sir Oliver, in a soft, deadly voice. I say it. I heard you, but I am asking where you learnt that pretty lesson. Is Sir John your preceptor? He is. He is. No need to tell me. I'll deal with him. Meanwhile, let me disclose to you the pure and disinterested source of Sir John's rancor. You shall see what an upright and honest gentleman is Sir John, who was your father's friend, and has been your guardian. I'll not listen to what you say of him. Nay, but you shall, in return for having made me listen to what he says of me. Sir John desires to obtain a license to build at the mouth of the fall. He hopes to see a town spring up above the haven there, under the shadow of his own manor of Arwenack. He represents himself as nobly disinterested and all concerned for the prosperity of the country and he neglects to mention that the land is his own, and that it is his own prosperity and that of his family which he is concerned to foster. We met in London by a fortunate chance, whilst Sir John was about his business at the court. Now it happens that I, too, have interests in Truro and Penryn, but, unlike Sir John, I am honest in the manner, and proclaim it. If any growth should take place about Smithick, it follows from its more advantageous situation than Truro and Penryn must suffer, and that suits me as little as the other matter would suit Sir John. I told him so, for I can be blunt, and I told the Queen in the form of a counter-petition to Sir John's. He shrugged. The moment was propitious to me, I was one of the seamen who had helped to conquer the 
unconquerable armada of King Philip. I was therefore not to be denied, and Sir John was sent home as empty-handed as he went to court. Do you marvel that he hates me? Knowing him for what he is, do you marvel that he dubs me pirate, and worse? Tis natural enough so to misrepresent my doings upon the sea, since it is those doings have afforded me the power to hurt his profit. He has chosen the weapons of calumny for this combat, but those weapons are not mine, as I shall show him this very day. If you do not credit what I say, come with me, and be present at the little talk I hope to have with that curmudgeon. You forget, said Master Godolphin, that I too have interests in the neighborhoods of Smithick, and that you are hurting those. So ho, crowed Sir Oliver, now at last the sun of truth peeps forth from all this cloud of righteous indignation at my bad Tresillian blood and pirate's ways. You too are but a trafficker. Now, see what a fool I am to have believed you sincere, and to have stood here and talked with you as with an honest man. His voice swelled, and his lip curled, in a contempt that struck the other like a blow. I swear I had not wasted breath with you had I known you for so mean and pitiful a fellow. These words, began Master Godolphin, drawing himself up very stiffly, are a deal less than your deserts, cut in the other, and he raised his voice to call, Nick! You shall answer to them, snapped his visitor. I am answering now, was the stern answer, to come here and prate to me of my dead father's dissoluteness, and of an ancient quarrel between him and yours, to bleat of my trumped-up course of piracy, and my own ways of life as a just cause, why I may not wed your sister, whilst the real consideration in your mind, the real spur to your hostility, is not more than the matter of some few paltry pounds a year that I hinder you from pocketing. A God's name, get you gone. Nick entered at that moment. You shall hear from me again, Sir Oliver, said the other, white with anger. You shall account to me for these words. I do not fight with, with hucksters, flashed Sir Oliver. Do you dare call me that? Indeed, tis to discredit an honorable class, I confess it. Nick, the door for Master Godolphin. End of the Preface and Chapter 1 Read by Denny Sayers in Modesto, California for LibriVox, Summer 2006